Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week on the Coffeehouse, we're going to be taking a look at some famous pedagogical methods for learning music and instruments. This is part two of our mini-series of the topic, and in our previous episode, we had gone into the biographical information about the namesakes of each of the methods we'll be looking at today. Before we dive right in, let's define what pedagogy is. It is the theory or practice of teaching. It often involves scientific backing about how students, particularly children, learn and respond to feedback. Thus, the methods we are talking about today are meant to be guides for teachers of how to effectively teach their students a given skill. In this case, of course, music. As a disclaimer, music educators who use these methods often attend hours of workshops and certifications to ensure they know the minute details of each method. Here on the Coffee House today, we are merely looking at an overview of the main theories behind each method in order to compare them. We'll start off with the ORF method, or as he called it, the ORF Schulwerk. ORF devised and implemented his method in the 1920s. However, it really gained international fame in the 1950s. The core values of the ORF Schulwerk method are the incorporation of music and movement, along with giving children the freedom of improvisation. Often, a music teacher will start a lesson by teaching a quick, simple song, often a folk song. The children are then asked to create some sort of accompanying movement. Often, other tools are involved, such as silk scarves or hand percussion instruments. This allows the children to interact with the music and learn to express how the music makes them feel. The ORF method also encourages self-composition and improvisation. For this, tuned percussion instruments such as xylophones and glockenspiels are used. Perhaps the teacher will read a poem and the students are asked to go around the room on their instruments coming up with sounds that match the tone of the words. Now while this all sounds like fun and games, actually learning how to read music is also incorporated into some lessons. Orff didn't prescribe an exact way to teach this, however, often instructors will start out by teaching vocal sophage notes, do, re, mi, etc., and these can gradually be related to notes on a staff. However, this isn't strongly implemented in most cases. The most important thing about Schulwerk is that the children are actively engaged in the music-making process and feel that they have agency over the performance. It has been argued that this method of learning will help children develop problem-solving skills, which is obviously a benefit as they grow older. They also learn cooperation as they collaborate with their peers to interpret a song, and there are also elements of light performance, but without the pressure of standing up on stage alone being judged by everybody. Next, we'll move on to the Kodai method, or rather, the Kodai concept. Kodai himself never wrote an official method or offered specific training in his teaching ideas. Rather, his colleagues and students who followed in his footsteps developed his ideas into a more comprehensive plan. The concepts are somewhat similar to ORF in that the students are meant to be learning to appreciate the music in a playful way. Kodai stressed that it should never be a chore for the students to learn music. 
As we mentioned in our previous episode, Kodai was strongly inspired by the folk music of Hungary. He advocated that folk music should be a key building block for students learning music. To that end, he also argued that the voice should be the primary instrument that is used when first learning, as it is the only instrument that is truly available to everyone. Kodai advocated that all schools should include music lessons as a part of the core curriculum, as music should be accessible and available to everyone, and instilling a joy of music in children as early as possible will ensure a lifelong appreciation for it. Kodai's concepts, like ORF, seek to incorporate movement with songs. When the solfege syllables are used, there are also hand signs that go along with them that should be demonstrated. He also advocated for teaching native folk dances to go along with the folk songs that are being taught. The Kodai concept, more firmly than ORF, stresses that music literacy should be introduced from an early age. This could start simply with improvisation, but will eventually be leveled up to skills including recognizing different parts within a piece, understanding intonation, and analyzing song form. Kodai also held the belief that since children are so impressionable in their early life, that the music they are exposed to should be of the highest quality possible. He stresses that folk songs are in fact high quality, as they are a child's link to their cultural heritage, which should be embraced. He also suggested that children should be exposed to the best works by the great composers. This would essentially set a standard for them to appreciate music. And finally, he stressed that music educators themselves should be excellent musicians. As someone who is working closely with the students, the teacher arguably has the most influence over how a child perceives music. If we are aiming for a child only being exposed to the best of the best, it would make sense that right in their own classroom, they should also experience the best. Kodai expressed that the four elements that should make up a good musician are, quote, a well-trained ear and well-trained intelligence, a well-trained heart, and a well-trained hand. And each of these elements must be developed concurrently. And now, finally, we move on to the Suzuki method. Suzuki first began developing his method in the 1930s in Japan, and by the middle of the century, his ideas had spread around the globe. This method is a little different than the previous two we've discussed, as it's not directed towards school-based programs, but rather more like a private lesson outside of the school. One of the key features of the Suzuki method that has created a good number of viral videos of extremely young prodigies is that music education should start very early in a child's life, often as early as three or four years old. Suzuki's theory was that children are easily able to learn their native language at that age and do so simply by listening, mimicking, and having a need and desire to express themselves. To that end, he suggested playing music could be thought of as a language, and starting early when a child's mind is primed just makes sense. So, students of the Suzuki method are given an instrument. Violin was the first instrument, but there are now programs for learning several types. Suzuki then created a core collection of learning pieces for each given instrument. Each day, the child will listen to the weekly pieces to be learned, and through trial and error, will essentially learn by ear how to play the piece. Thus, in certain instances, very technical and showy pieces can be learned by very young children. Only after a few years into the program are children finally introduced to the concept of note reading. Thus, they should be able to easily transition their memorized pieces over to a visual medium and become fully fluent in music. The Suzuki program is very regimented, however. 
The child is required to attend one private lesson and one group lesson each week. And on top of that, the parents are required to attend the lesson as well. It is their job to take notes about what happens and what to work on the following week. And it doesn't stop there. At home, the parent who attended the lesson is required to hold daily practice sessions with the child, essentially becoming the home teacher. Luckily, since there is no note reading at the beginning of the program, the parent doesn't have to be a musician themselves. Rather, they are just a guide and a cheerleader for the child, meant to nurture their development along the way. As we mentioned in our previous episode in Suzuki's biography, he really wanted to create good people in addition to creating good musicians. He advocated that learning music was a way to promote intelligence and compassion in all children. Quote, I want, if I can, to get education changed from mere instruction to education in the real sense of the world. Education that inculcates, brings out, develops the human potential based on the growing life of the child. That is why I am devoting my efforts to furthering talent education. What a child becomes depends entirely on how he is educated. My prayer is that all children on this globe may become fine human beings, happy people of superior ability, and I am devoting all my energies to making this come about, for I am convinced that all children are born with this potential. So now we've taken a look at three of the more prominent music education systems. Though they differ, they do all have a few commonalities. They seek to provide music education to as many children as possible, and in doing so, they will develop not only a child's musical skill, but also provide them with lifelong problem-solving skills and an enjoyment of culture. So, Allison, have any of these techniques ever been used on you during your education? Um, thinking back to my elementary school music classes, I do believe that I was fully educated in the ORF style of teaching. I was going to say the same thing, actually. (laughs) We had a full set of the glockenspiels and xylophones in our music room, as well as an extensive array of hand percussion instruments. Do you remember the bars? The big bars? The big bars that were all on the ground. Oh, Mm -hmm. those were great. And you always had to fight over who was going to get to play them. Exactly. And I also distinctly remember we had the silk scarves and we'd always Mm -hmm. have to get our favorite color. And we'd dance around with them showing like high notes or low notes and different speeds of the music. We also had quite a lot of folk songs that we learned and would perform in little concerts for our parents every now and again. So... Mm -hmm. I I would say that definitely ORF is what was formidable for me in my music education. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It wasn't until like, I want to say fourth or fifth grade where we started learning recorder that Mm -hmm. we actually started to read music and look at notes on a staff. Exactly. But before that, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there were many instances where we would essentially just run around the room and bang on instruments. (laughs) <laughs> until something until something came out of it and the teacher started to give us some some direction. I, I also experienced um, as a as a young child, I learned piano or I was told Attempting to learn piano. To learn yes. piano. <laughs> um, we my, my brothers and I all got piano lessons um, from a lovely older lady and she was very uh, she, she taught us very strictly in the Suzuki method, like with the Suzuki oh. method piano. Um, and that exact kind of regimentation we would do two lessons a week we'd do a group lesson although with three of us all three of us were the group (laughs) lesson Um, and then when we came home 
the the expectation was that there was a lot of at-home practice. Um, now, since we were already a little older at this point, like already in fourth, fifth grade, we started learning to read music in that right away mm-hmm. instead of instead of a couple of years down the line. So we had the books, we had all that stuff. And, and, and were your parents actively involved as well? They they tried, but we were much more interested in doing other things as <laughs> young as young children. So we we, we were not very good students. Um, so it was kind of a, a light Suzuki method. <laughs> she tried her very best um, <laughs> to to enforce the Suzuki. But I, I think it would have definitely been a different story had we started much earlier. Um, and the, the strict regimentation was just not that fun. I also learned piano starting at, at a young age, I think second or third grade. And I did not experience the Suzuki method. And I stuck with it until I graduated a senior in high school. So mm-hmm. I wonder if there was a bit of... I, I felt like I was more invested in it because it was my own thing rather than being enforced with the strict method and teaching. I feel like that is Obviously, I still practiced during the week and had to go to lessons, but it was not quite so regimented. And mm-hmm. I also... I learned reading notes as I was learning the technique of the piano and gradually worked up to playing well-known classical pieces. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's definitely true. Whereas you were drawn to piano at that, at roughly the same age as I was, you were drawn there from a desire to learn. I was pushed into it um, <laughs> from a, you know, from the perspective of, well, this is something that you should do as as a young child is learn music rather than becoming ingrained into my mind, even younger as I was, mm-hmm. as, as they say, primed to learn as the mind is primed <laughs> to learn rather than primed to be a bratty kid. <laughs> Asa, but are you now a good person? I, I think I have retained some of the, <laughs> some of the unwillingness in some cases, but now with a with a genuine desire to learn and appreciate classical music all i mean all throughout of course you know my <laughs> college years were full of music willingly <laughs> definitely willingly seeking out experiences and if you'd enjoyed this experience that you've sought out by listening to the coffee house please consider dropping us a review or a like on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe sorry follow if you are listening to us on Spotify and definitely share this episode about teaching methods with a like-minded friend or family member. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Vivaldi's Violin Concerto in F Major RV 293 was performed by the Wichita State University Chamber Players and John Harrison, conducted by Robert Terzini. You can find the Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.